This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The traditional way we talk about the relationship, the individual to the world, is usually framed in terms of separation versus oneness. And the paradigmatic story of the life of Shakyamuni is told of his growing up in a literally walled-off, sheltered, idyllic kingdom, protected from the realities of sickness, old age, and death. And at some point venturing out into a broader world to come to terms with those realities, finally culminating in an experience of oneness. I'd like to suggest that we look at relationship of the individual to the world morning from a along a different uh, axis. That has to do with the way we experience the nature of the world that we're either a part of or cut off from. The uh, sociologist uh, Max Weber uh, used the term disenchantment to describe modern man's experience of the world as purely material, purely the object of our rational goals and our techniques for transformation. It was a some sense valueless object onto which we projected our own intentions and its value was in what we chose to do with it. It's a measure of how thoroughly we occupy a disenchanted world that it's hard to even come up with a word for the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, Enchanted 
has too much of a kind of fairy tale quality to it to think of it now as a viable alternative to disenchanted. Uh, we don't even know what to call the opposite. The dilemma for us if we see the world as intrinsically material and devoid of any meaning of its own is that when we feel non-separate from that world, uh, we feel part of something, uh, something meaningless, a vast material universe driven by cause and effect or even randomness with no plan, no purpose, no meaning, and that the best we can do is sort of try to impose our own narrative upon it to give us some solace in the midst of a deeply alienating landscape. A modern, the modern sense of alienation or of meaninglessness in the world is not just a matter of feeling separate from the world, but of feeling part of a world that uh, is just a thing. And so part of our practice is to try to find out how to reanimate the world with value. What we are a part of is not just a lifeless thing. Now, Weber talked about man's relationship to this disenchanted world as existing solely in terms of the imposition of his own rational goals on that world. Uh, Goals that were intrinsically arbitrary or self-centered. But that value was synonymous with the fulfillment of that goal. When we try to talk about no gain in Zazen, when we talk about uselessness, one of the things we're trying to do is move out of that modern paradigm in which value is synonymous with use and uh, synonymous with a goal. We are trying to recapture some experience of imminent value, of the value of things in and of themselves, not just terms of what use we can put them to, what we can make out of them. A 
another way of trying to reanimate our world comes from our sense of participation in something that is vitalizing, alive, meaningful, energizing. That the world is not simply lifeless material to be shaped by us, but has a vitality that we draw from and we are animated by. And we can experience that in all sorts of ways that don't have anything to do with uh, religion or some kind of mystical notion of oneness. Um, When you move from the suburbs to the big city, you can have the feeling that you're going to the place where it's all happening. This is where it's at. Even if you... uh, aren't directly participating uh, in the literary or cultural or uh, political or financial center, you know, of what's going on, you can feel like, this is Oz, you know, this is, this is really where it's all happening, right? We know it's not happening in New Jersey, we, you know, it's, it's why we come to New York, right? So there's a way in which we can imagine that um, a society, an institution, a center has a kind of meaning and vitality in its own right. And by just by being there, we draw something from that. Our life is not uh, completely random or alienated. We are where it's happening. Um, one of the very poignant documents of uh, from classical Rome is uh, Ovid's Poems of Exile. He had been sort of a favorite poet in the court, I believe, of Augustus and wrote something that really offended the emperor uh, after he had composed the Metamorphoses, and uh, he was driven into exile. You know, he didn't say he was lucky, he didn't have his head cut off, but they sent him into exile, which in some sense was worse, and uh, the Roman Empire was a pretty big place at that point, and they sent him to live out his life in a little sort of garrison town, I think now in Bulgaria, on the uh, coast of the Black Sea which was as about as out of it as a, you know, a court poet could possibly feel. Right? Uh, so, and he wrote all these poetic letters back, you know, trying to uh, reinstate himself in favor. It never worked, and he died in exile. Uh, but there's that whole sense of, that we can have of either being at the center of things, where life is happening, or being hopelessly exiled to some, uh, you know, intellectually uh, or culturally dead periphery. Now there are lots of versions of that, uh, and the sangha can be one of them. Right? Uh, we can 
create for ourselves a sense that this place is really where it's happening, right? Or we can treat the Sangha as sort of the Dharmic equivalent of Bulgaria and think, you know, that the real thing is happening in Japan at Eiheiji, uh, but, you know, we have to sort of uh, piddle out our days, you know, in a little uh, zendo in uh, the middle of nowhere on 74th Street. To some extent, this is part of our own cultural or intellectual choice and creation. Do we feel like we're where it's happening, or is what's happening very far away? We can also uh, participate in meaning at a somewhat more abstract level um, when we feel like we are participating in the Dharma itself. We feel like we are part of something valuable and bigger than ourselves. And as in the verse we chant before these talks, we say we both, now we see it, hear it, hold and maintain it. See, that's two sides of this. We, we see it and hear it. We are able to partake of it and draw meaning and strength from it, but we also are responsible for holding and maintaining it. Right? Uh, we have this bi-directional relationship to the Dharma. It's both something that supports us and something that we are responsible for co-creating and keeping alive. Um, in some sense, the Dharma... is a teaching that continues cross-culturally over a couple thousand years and is available all times, everywhere, to everyone. And in another sense, it only exists here and now when we come together, sit down together, talk together, and enact the Dharma that we call it forth, we call it forth into existence by our actions. Um, this was really Dogen's uh, sense of what Zazen is, and how Zazen from the very first sitting uh, is a way of both participating in and creating uh, the enlightened way. Our very act of Zazen calls forth the, the enlightened way, manifests it right here and right now by this action. Right? And at the same time, we don't have to invent it from scratch. Right? It's not as if every time we come together we have to figure out how to sit or how to run the Zendo. There's this whole cultural stream that we can enter into and be carried along by. Uh, so we are both carried by it and the carriers of it. Right? And I think that 
our experience of our practice uh, will vary over the years, maybe over moment to moment, of that experience of what is foregrounded. Are we making some big effort being here? Uh, Is it... uh, are we sort of taking a lot of trouble to get up in the morning, come down here and do this thing? Right? Or are we, in a sense, able to just step on the bus and have it carry us along? Right? Is it, do, can we experience this as something that holds, supports, and carries us rather than as a big stone we're always pushing uphill? Right? It's, a, it's an interesting way to think about many aspects of our life. Um, the Dharma perhaps is only one version of that that we participate in. Um, something that we hold as an ideal that both supports us and that we have to support. We can think of uh, love or justice uh, in the same way. Um, We, in some sense, live our lives trusting in the existence of a lawful world, of of an idea of justice or fairness that we can appeal to, count on, hold things together. Uh, And yet, that is something that in our actions we have to maintain and embody if it's going to be continuing. We want to trust in the meaning and existence of love between people, compassion between people. Something we both want to be the recipient of And yet it's something that if it's going to exist, we also have to embody. I think we need to see our practice then in this... uh, dimension in which we are not just trying to be one with everything, but that we are in our actions, in our attitudes, animating that world that we are one with, right? That we are making it a world of the Dharma. We are making it a world of love. We're making it a world of justice. Uh, That's a world that's worth being one with.